Hey there, lovelies. Kevin Pereira here. You probably know that. And if you don't, welcome, noobs. Good to have you. I'm going to get the hell out of the way quickly. Don't worry. This is just an explainer to those who subscribe to the Pointless Podcast. As you may or may not know, Casey Crescenzo, the frontman for The Deer Hunter, is a friend of mine and I think a, a brilliant visionary and artist. And his albums mean more to me than most things on this planet. So when he said that he wanted to do a little something, maybe a podcast leading up to the release of Act 5. I said, how can I help? And it turns out one of the ways I can help is by hosting his podcast because a handful of you already subscribe and listen and know uh, about the deer hunter, about my love for them. So here it is, friends. This is the first of what will be five podcasts that tell the act tales, behind-the-scenes stories, inspirations. It's got Casey and Alex Dandino, and they're going to take you through it all. So I hope you enjoy it. I can't wait to listen myself. So I'm going to stop talking. And here we go. everybody. My name's Casey Crescenzo, and I play in a band called The Deer Hunter. Although you presumably knew that if you elected to listen to this. Otherwise, if you randomly chanced upon it, thanks for listening and nice to meet you. But essentially what I'm doing is going through all of my band's albums from Act 1 to Act 5, discluding The Color Spectrum and Migrant, and discussing them with my close friend and creative partner Alex Dandino to varying degrees of randomness. Um... And we start by sort of explaining how we know each other. And then from there, we kind of dive into Act One here first. So I hope you enjoy, and uh, here we go. I actually, the thing that's uncomfortable right now is having to like listen to each other's voices rather than text like we usually do. Yeah. It's, it's definitely uh shocking. I'm just, I'm just so used to watching the ellipses. Be like, <laughs> oh God, what's he going to say next? <laughs> yeah. Usually Tivoli can count on if it's after 9 PM, 10 PM and I am crying with laughter. She she knows for a fact that I am talking to you. There is no question in her mind. And it's gotten to the point now where I think at first it was endearing. And she was like, oh, you guys are so cute. And now it's like, are you fucking kidding me? Oh, yeah. Go to bed. Oh, yeah. And Andrea's uh, had the same thing. She's like, <laughs> she's like, come out in the living room. She's like, are you sleeping? I'm like, no, I'm talking to Kate. She's like, oh, my God. Just <laughs> go to bed. Oh, my God. So we know each other through other people. Right. Through we have one we have strange back channels. One person specifically. Yeah. My like best honestly, the only person I talk to from where I grew up, uh, who happens to play in the Deer Hunter now. Right. Rob. Yes. Uh did you know actually uh there's that did Robert Rob never told you that story how we were supposed to play with you guys when you were in receiving into sirens? 
I think you started telling me I think me I that. told you that story where we were supposed to play with you guys like the night before you guys played that uh, 20th anniversary alternative press show. The one with like story of the year and Coheed and me without well, yeah. you. Yeah. Yeah, of course. It was a killer bill. But like that's, you know, besides the point. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> That's the shittiest thing I could have said. Um, but no, yeah, like we were supposed to all, we were supposed to, we were really excited. And then they're like, those fucking guys didn't even show up. What the fuck? And then the next day we were at the show and I think, I can't remember who Rob talked to, but they were like, oh, we didn't even, we weren't even on the bill. I'm like, oh, okay. Well, never mind. Forget it. We had a lot of experiences like that where it was either, we were finding out that we were on a bill in some random place on some random date that we didn't agree to, or <laughs> that we showed up for a show that we were positive we were supposed to be playing only to find out that not even were we not on a bill, but there was no bill for that night anywhere in town for any bands. Like just showing up to a random town in Pennsylvania, just that's fantastic, hoping to do something close <laughs> to playing a show because oh we God. played our fair amount of not really show shows right, right. like a show in the middle of a half pipe, <laughs> which there is, there's footage online. I've seen it. I've seen it. it was the I'm first in cut off shorts. I'm in cut off jeans. All your stuff's play on a, uh, on a ironing on a board, ironing board. It was vintage. <laughs> what was funny about that is, it was all just because we couldn't afford equipment and I couldn't afford a good stand. And it got to the point because we took our drummer Andrew's mother's uh, ironing board and it got to be a point of it, it became an argument about really Casey, you have to get your own fucking ironing board. <laughs> and oh my God. I, what an amazing argument for 20 <laughs> year old boys to be having. <laughs> sure, an ironing board. Yeah, it, it was uh, it was funny. My mom needs this back. You can't keep using it at shows. And, it, <laughs> and fans actually made us a custom receiving end of sirens ironing board cover that we kept wow. on it. And uh, yeah, man, I don't know what was going on. The ironing board kind of came became this weird symbol for the band for a, probably a year until that's crazy. I just. Uh, sucked it up and bought a keyboard stand. <laughs> yeah. I don't know. I have no idea what we were thinking. And I think the first recollection I have was when Rob was playing with as tall as lions, the first tour they went out on was with you guys. The first big tour they had was right. with you guys. Right. And Which I think was actually my last tour in the band. Uh, I don't know. I guess so. Yeah. Probably. I think it is because I remember meeting Rob. I want to say it was in Providence at Lupo's, and uh, I just remember thinking, "Who? Who is he? Who is this child?" <laughs> <laughs> and he ended up honestly being the the easiest person to get along with in the band. And, and oh, I was going to say captivating. Yes, he, no, well, he fine. is captivating. <laughs> he had yes. phenomenal hair back then too. Yeah, it was really long. Yeah, Rob. Yeah, he, he looked great. Yeah. He, I remember he came back because I, at that point, nobody that I was related to lived in Cleveland anymore. But I came back for like two weeks because we were playing like reunion shows with our old like high school band. Mm -hmm. He came back and he said, 
you should meet Casey. Like you guys would probably get along. You're very similar. I'm like, he sounds like a, I'm a fucking piece of shit. I don't want to meet anybody who's like me. That's terrible. (laughs) It's the same exact thing that happened. (laughs) And, and I don't know how long he was telling you that for, but he was telling me that from basically the point he started playing in the band. Actually, I think it was 2010 or something like that, that he first came out and played with us and it took, What, 2013 was that when we met? I think so. Somewhere or, around. Or there. that's like when we actually started talking. We may have been in the same room before that. I think I think like 2012 was when I like started showing up at shows when you guys were in LA. Right. And I'd be like, "Oh, hey guys, I'm just here to drink your beer and say <laughs> hi." And uh, uh, and then I think like we all like met up at Ladyface one time. Right, right. That was the first time we all hung out and that I we were so. And I remember it being fairly intimidated. Um, just oh, I was terrified. I was terrified. Just because there was so much to it, it was it was weirdly like a blind date. Just because you, <laughs> the amount of oh, you guys are so alike. Oh, you guys have to meet and all these things. And Rob playing this weird version of like a friendship matchmaker. He did a really good like hello Dolly. It was good. Was I don't. Impressive. I don't know what that is. Well, I've tried to teach you as much as I can about musical theater, my limited <laughs> knowledge. I have a feeling your knowledge is not limited. It's probably, it's more limited than some. It's shockingly limitless among other people who don't know anything about. Like me. Who look, who look at me and say, there's no way that guy knows anything about that. <laughs> and then that's the conversation I end up having with him. I wonder how many times someone has turned in their car at a stoplight to see you just really digging into some show tunes. <laughs> More times than I'd like to admit. Probably. I try and keep like, I'm trying, I try and keep it to just freeway driving. Right. So that like no one's really paying attention. <laughs> so that like, while I'm driving, I'm like, you know, let it go. Get the fuck out of my way. You know, like someone, <laughs> someone really fucks up, but you know, what are you going to do? But we're not here to talk about that. Okay. Okay. We should talk about – so we're going through your records. We're going through the act records. Right. Right. We're we're excluding Migrant and the Color Spectrum records, correct? We're just talking about the acts straight up. Right. And I think to just put a really short ending on where we were going before, it all leads up to the reason – you know so much about this and you're so close to this is because after Rob introduced us and you and I talked and became friends that you did get very involved in this specifically, you know, writing the comic books. And then after writing act one and us kind of launching off on that, it was the same time that I was getting to work on act four and act five. And so you became a pretty important person in in the realm of the storytelling and the characters and and creative decisions on a plot level so just had to say that like recorded (laughs) why don't you like that because then people are gonna like i like seeing people ask you questions like that i don't want to be involved with that kind of thing (laughs) that is not the caveat i thought you were gonna have with that with me saying that i thought it was going to be a little bit more um what's the word humble (laughs) then oh you had to say that now i'm just going to be bothered with questions from fans who care 
and oh, want to know more. With, I, I figured that went without saying. But That you you'd know. be bothered? Well, more or less. <laughs> I don't no, well, essentially all i was saying was that because of our connection it's why you and i would have a conversation about this as opposed to really like anyone else and i it, it just you know so much about the stories and i've bothered you for so long about the details that you really kind of know all there is to know on that level well, it is kind of, it's kind of cool. You know I mean? It's starting as like a fan and like seeing this whole thing grow and then getting included in on it. Cause at first I was just assuming, Oh, he's just bouncing ideas. That's fine. And then it was something like end of act four, roughly into act five. And you were like, you know, you're like part of this and you have to help me develop the story. <laughs> and I was like, Oh no, I didn't know that actually. Uh, all right. And like, I'm like <laughs> flipping through my notebooks and stuff like that. So well, it's, it is, it's weird, but it's, it's cool. But it's, uh, I, I mean, it is weird just because with the amount of people I've been creatively at- attached to or working with or collaborating with in the past, there's never been anybody who, who I don't know if they care, didn't care or not, but never been anybody who I spoke with the story on that level and would actually, in a good way, have arguments about details and, uh, you right. know, anything like that. So that's, that's all good. just to say who you are and, and why you and I are having this conversation. Well, that's good. Now everyone, but now everyone knows. So, I mean, that's probably what, what you'd want. Of course. Um, I mean, your name is on the comic books. That's it's, true. It's, it's no, <laughs> there's no it's like no bait mis- and switch. There's no mystery anymore. Right. And it shouldn't be because why, why should I, you know, why, why should I be the singular name of something that's become a, you know, a collaboration between you and I, which is why mm-hmm. the, you know, the comic books are so exciting is because those are legitimately a collaborative el- effort with right. what I've done with the story and then you taking it and actually making it a story. Well, I think that's kind of what the it's the first time I've had that collaboration where I kind of get the freedom like I have all these like the way I describe it to people is it's kind of like it's the sandbox and then you get to build a castle in the sandbox and then your friend comes over and looks at it and like knocks one <laughs> quarter of it down and then says but build back up like this and you're like oh yeah all right that, right. that, that, that looks a little better. I, so, for a second, I th- assumed you were going to say it's like you've got a sandbox and you want to build a castle, but your friend tells you you can only build it out of the shit you find in the sandbox, not the sand. <laughs> well, no, like it's uh, it's the shit you find in the sandbox you have to use, but then you can bring like three toys in right. to make the scene. And that's really kind of what it ends up being. Right. It's like if you have all Thundercats in the sandbox, I get to bring two Power Rangers and an X-Man. <laughs> so, uh, as weird as that that sounds i think that's very accurate i think so too but now let's jump way back right when when was uh when was the when was act one released act one i want to say was 2006 wow so that's yeah. 10 years yeah yeah wow this is cool i didn't even realize that that's crazy either did i holy um, shit it's it's definitely weird but this is like the first 
So, but Act One, Act One's not the first music you recorded from the Deer Hunter no. saga, I guess. No, I, the first thing that I did was a bunch of demos that I, well, I was still in the Receiving and the Sirens, and we had just finished recording our first album. And uh, the first thing I did after that was take a trip home. I was living on the East Coast, and I took a trip home to the West Coast to stay with my parents for basically the holiday season because we kind of wrapped up the album in early December, and I think we were going back in January to mix. Um, So in that time frame, I went home and uh, was going through, you know, a painful breakup. And also, you know, I was only what, 19, maybe 20. I think I was 20 or maybe I, I, yeah, I was 20, just about to turn 21. And I was also, you know, young and angry and bitter, um, about that kind of stuff. I, I didn't really have any context to put big emotional things in beyond music. So I, I wrote, a bunch of demos and I started sort of finding comfort in putting my own bitterness and my own, you know, drama and everything that I was going through in the, I guess in the box of a story. And it just seemed to be freeing in a way that I didn't then have to be tied down to reality. Um, right. And it became, uh, the potential for it being therapeutic was much greater in that it allowed me to to work out some of those more extreme perspectives that I had about my situation and about the life that I was living at the time. Um, it's also enabling because you don't necessarily have to face the truth of situations. Right. But right. at the time, that's what I did is I wrote these – I don't remember how many songs, but – I, uh, I think it was like 10. I think it was 10. And I brought them back with me to um, the East Coast. And I just, I like uh, burnt, I want to say 10 copies. And I had no ambition behind doing anything with it. But I, I burnt these 10 copies and I gave one to each of the guys in the band and uh, a couple of our close friends. And that was all I really thought about it. Um that was all I thought about it until somebody, I don't remember who, but gave the uh, gave the demos to Fred Feldman, who um, is the you know the the owner of uh, Triple Crown Records, and he right. contacted me and just basically said, "If you ever want to do anything with this, you know, I back you." Not in a way of like if you ever want to jump ship and go start your own band, but in a way of you know, in the in your receiving an sirens contract, you have a clause for for side projects, and and it was kind of like I get the first right to this, no matter what. But it wasn't right. selfish at all. It was very encouraging. It was like I I I would want to do this whether or not it was just a, a side project. So I kind of kept that in the back of my mind, and then uh, we had been touring off of the first receiving in a sirens record for a little while. And, uh, I talked to Fred a little bit more about it and I played like one show as the deer hunter and the guys in the receiving in the sirens backed me up for a few songs. And, um, I did this one show and Mike Marquis, who has been my booking agent 
since before the deer hunter and has been my manager for a long time as well. Um, he came to that show and, and he kind of echoed the sentiment of Fred. And so what we kind of drummed up was that I would do an EP. I would do a side project EP. I would kind of make the deer hunter just a project. And I started writing and recording act one because a lot of what was on those demos, when I started to flesh out the story, I realized wasn't really the beginning of a, of a story. And I wanted to make sure that if I was going to do something conceptual, that it was fully formed from start to finish before I kind of put, put the first bit out because I knew while it needed to evolve and it needed to develop and new styles would be added and old styles would be removed. It, it wouldn't be cohesive if it was just stream of consciousness for 10 years. Right. So I started writing and, and recording and I actually recorded all of the instruments for act one once. And then the hard drive got corrupted and I lost the entire record. Oh, <laughs> and oh, God. yeah, it was horrifying. I remember the day I was on tour with the receiving and sirens and I was pulling out my sort of makeshift studio on tour and I was going to add some sort of ear candy to it. And that's when I realized that the, uh, it was all corrupted and I couldn't afford the data recovery stuff. That was a few thousand dollars, you know? Right. So I, I don't remember actually being too upset about it because I just love being in the studio. So I went back and I re-recorded everything and changed things around. And I think I added the song 1878. And, uh, and then I was, when I was let go from the receiving of the sirens, that's when I got the sort of second call from Fred and from Mike. And they both said once again, like, if you want to do this, we back you a hundred percent. Right. Yeah. And that's kind of where that all started. So, yeah, so do you think that do you think that the hard drive corrupting was like this divine providence kind of? Do you think it allowed you to go back and do yeah. something much better than what you had come up with or I think so. I think that is better the right word I guess is probably the better question. Um Yeah, I I would I want to believe that. I I right. definitely <laughs> want to think that what I ended up with is better than what could have been. Right. Um and especially because it wasn't like what was there was fully formed and fully edited and, you know, everything was there. I, a lot of the, <coughs> sorry, a lot of the, uh, again, like ear candy or additional instrumentation. I, I think uh, the two instrumental tracks on the album weren't there um, at the beginning either. And it was kind of like the, the other thing it allowed me to do was refine further. It was kind of like, I got to make a sophomore record first. That's cool. And I got to refine further my sort of internal mission statement of the kind of music that I wanted to make and the kind of albums that I wanted to make. Right. And so it did afford me a sort of forced perspective shift that, I firmly, you know, I, I do believe wholeheartedly that had I not, um, had I not done that, 
I can't imagine that what was there would have been as good or resonated with people the same way. I think it would have been a lot less interesting. Did you did you look at the demos that you had already done? Like, let's say you did the so the misleading demos were out there. Did you look at them and try and at first form the story from there, or did you know that it was going to have to be a prequel before you? I knew started? that. I knew that when I started to think about the context of all of these things and. You know, like the the misleading demos, I think, is what they're labeled when you torrent them. I think. Uh, I think so. <laughs> <laughs> um, when I was thinking about this as a as a larger project than just taking it a record at a time, um, it just immediately felt like okay. Well, the first thing has to be an actual birth, and right. it has to be if this is going to be about a person, then I want to tell a story about this person's life from beginning to end. Um, because I knew that I was going to grow and I was going to evolve. And the things that struck me as interesting and captivating and inspiring were going to change greatly over time. Right. So centering a concept entirely around romance felt like there was only so far that I would really go before I felt totally stale. Sure. And, and so going back and, and sort of planting those seeds of the story to be much less about this one dimensional topic. Right. That I could open up the possibility for a lot more to happen and also in doing so, and, and a lot of other characters like, you know, Pimp and the Priest and Miss Terry were mm-hmm. were created out of just the necessity of fleshing the story out. Well, I think what's interesting is the romance, of, like romance being considered one dimensional, like as the records have gone on, like whether you know it or not, I don't I don't know whether you realize it or not, like the dimensions of love have really become like, I think central to how the story moves. Right. So I guess I would, I would take us another stab at, at that word. I don't know if one dimensional is the right way to put it, but I guess just a singular topic doesn't seem like what that, right. that specific topic that's discussed in those demos and also act two that like, uh, that that topic I feel like can only go so far. And right. obviously, you know, love in general is a big um, thread amongst all of the records. But in act one, I think I just didn't want to start with romantic love. No, absolutely. I think that's probably why, I mean, personally, as like just a consumer, I think that's why those kinds of things resonate with people is you're offering a different version, I guess, You'd be offering a different topic on love, almost like it's like it's like a subtopic, almost. I right, guess. right. I think it's it's something that I feel like happens with this band a lot, which is the topics and and the music and everything might be you know super specific, so they don't necessarily appeal to everyone, but the people who are willing to kind of dive in and and dig into what a song might be about or what a theme might be about. They find in themselves that they actually have a lot more in common with it, or they're a lot more, um, they feel more attachment to that sentiment where, you know, the, right. 
that sort of love for a mother to a child is not necessarily the, you know, a hot topic for pop music. Um, (laughs) (laughs) You know what I mean? Uh, Especially when you frame it in the sort of backdrop of what a lot of people would just say is progressive rock. Sure. A, A progressive rock record that contains music about a mother loving their child is not necessarily you would be throwing darts at a board of randomness to come up with that sort of song (laughs) structure, you know? Yeah. I mean, I don't really know if that's, I don't think it's like a foreign topic, but I think what I get, I get what you're saying though. It's not a popular thing in pop music, I guess. Well, it's just, it's not the go-to topic for a, a man to be singing about. It's basically like you and Will Smith doing just the two of us is you guys are, you guys hit that note. I would say and we run the family <laughs> a love game. <laughs> oh, man. Um, so, yeah. So, so I, I, uh, so I, was it just you recording the record? So for the most part, it was when I went back and re-recorded it, um, because actually the first time I recorded it, I had done all MIDI drums because I right. just did not have faith in myself as a, as an engineer to track acoustic drums and show people that. Um, but when I went back and uh, I mean, this is actually a really good reason why what was released versus what I was working on at first is so much better because there's songs like um, Pimp and the Priest where that sort of rolling Louisiana drum beat mm-hmm. is 100% from my brother. It was me playing him all of the other instruments that I, and I hadn't recorded drums um, or even demo drums. And he sat down and he was just like, well, what do you think of this? And then he played that and immediately, and this happens 90% of the time, it's like, oh, that's right. You know what I want to do better than I do. Right. And uh, that's not to take any wind out of the sails of his creativity by saying, oh, good, you've facilitated what I wanted. But just that. No, I don't think that's what that is at all. You just it's important to work with people who know what you want without you realizing that's what you wanted. Yeah. Yeah. And improving upon the thing that you don't necessarily have. Right. You know, the, the vocabulary to, to get it to where you want it to be. And, uh, right. That's what he's honestly done the entire time. So, oh man, I forget where we were going just a second ago. You asked something before I, uh, I just wanted to know if you were the, uh, if you played all the instruments. Oh, right. Okay. So no. So he played drums. Um, my, my mother obviously sang a good deal of that album. And then I played everything except the sort of more fine instruments like brass and, and any string instruments. And, uh, um, played those. So there were two guys, actually there were three guys. There was two guys from this band, Monty R.I., do you remember okay. them? I know that name. I don't think I I have friends who loved them. It was Ryan Muir, I want to say, and Andrew Borstein or Borstein. Um, and they were two of the guys from that band. And they played basically 
all of the brass except for the the main trunk trumpet on uh the pym of the priest and that was done by somebody who i'm looking up right now uh (laughs) because i just can't remember his name it was so long ago and the last time i saw him was maybe 2008 or something and he we were at his college and he came out and and uh as the interviewer i should be the one researching this and reminding you of these people but no i think it is important oh tom neeson I don't oh, know okay. why I couldn't remember that name. What an idiot. Uh, Seriously. Liam Neeson. <laughs> but basically, I want to say, so this was at a time when if I wanted something like that, if I wanted a trumpet, if I wanted a string musician or or anything like that, it was like word of mouth or posting something online and just a lot of students, a lot of high school kids um, just you know, whoever I could get to come and track something. And right. he, he came and did the trumpet on Pimp of the Priest. And then my dad played organ on 1878 and actually also on that song, I think the only other person who sang on that album, other than my mother and I, uh, was Dan from As Tall as Lions. I was actually going to ask about that. That was one of my questions was like, was him singing an aesthetic choice? Like you wanted to signify a different character in the story? Or was it was just not at all. Person? It was that we were, I had looked for places to mix the album and I, I, I think I posted something about it on MySpace or live journal or something. <laughs> <laughs> I don't remember. I remember trios was pretty heavy with live journal. Perhaps I don't, it was I don't Zanga. Huh? Perhaps it was Zanga. What is Zanga? Is that bef- was, is that before Live Journal? I think it was all the same. It, they're, they're all the same ones. I don't know. Live I Journal, was Zanga. Way into CompuServe. <laughs> <laughs> but, I'm a big Commodore guy, but yeah. so, it's fine. <laughs> I had a Commodore 64. <laughs> I did. I loved it. Um, but basically, I was looking for places to mix the record. Because I had already, before the record was finished, I had moved back to uh, Massachusetts. Right. And I got in touch, or I got someone reached out from this studio called Rocket, like R-O-C-K-I-T, Rocket Studios. Or studio, or something like that. And it was on Long Island, and I basically found out that this kid had made a studio in his parents' basement that was pretty cool and had a little, you know, ISO room and stuff like that. So I went there with with all of the music and I was going to track some of the vocals there. And Dan came by one day because I was out in Long Island and I was just showing him the song and uh, showing him my lyrics and telling him what the song was about and uh, we kind of just developed that um, call and response. So I, I, you know, I would sing the first line, and he would he would sort of echo it with right. some embellishments. And you know, his range is definitely higher than mine. So he he Dan's range is higher than like everyone's. I know, I know, it's, it's wild. Um, but basically, the, it was at that point, it was just because he was there. There was right. there was no thought 
behind it beyond like, yeah, do you want to sing on this record? Sure. Why not? Right. Um, you know, going back in some weird revisionist history, there's, there's reasons that you could say there are two singers on that song, but I, I, mean, I you could, but, but, but I would rather just admit that there was no, there was no <laughs> thought behind it. I mean, there's so much shit that I labor over that I don't need to pretend I labored where I didn't, you know? <laughs> right, right. It's interesting because when I was writing the, when I was writing the book, that song became like a big centerpiece for that. Like the call and response ended up being like a huge part of like the third act of the book almost mm-hmm. because like, it's weird. Cause I've never adapting a record into a comic book is really weird, but finding these little patches of lyrics that you think might be one thing. And you're like, you know what? I could totally make it work thematically and story wise. If I just take this chunk and put it here and then take this <laughs> other piece and put it there. Like it's very, very weird, but well, what I'm glad I I'm not the only one who has no, like nothing like that. No. What I appreciate is that from the beginning, you made it very clear that you were like, I, I want to do this, but I don't No Part of me wants to just make this like, turn the page when you hear this sound or use all of the, of the lyrics as dialogue. And I thought that that was actually, you know, infinitely more respectful to what was being done than to just say like, yeah, I'll do this and I'll grab all these lyrics and I'll turn them into dialogue. Cause you're, you're saying that there's more to the story than there is on record and that there's can be more depth to the characters than comes through on record. And, and, uh, Right. You know, in a in a respectful way, you're saying it can be improved upon, and that to me is much more exciting than someone just kind of coming in and sort of just, I guess, reformatting the lyrics to be a, a you know dialogue and, and right. narration and stuff like that. Well, I think the thing that I noticed about the record was because, like, when we talked a lot about the story, like the focus of the story is hunt is the deer hunter, the boy or whatever you want, whatever people are calling him, whatever, whatever people call this character. That's, that's like the focus. That's the main focus. He's the person who takes us all the way through to the final act. And I think what I noticed about the first act was that he's not really the main character musically to me of the first act. Yeah. Yeah. He definitely isn't. He, he, he only has, uh, a little hiccup of growth, you know, it's just yeah. his character is not, it, 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 it's inconsequential almost, except for the fact that he's there at that point. And, and the, the consequence yeah. comes from him being there, but it doesn't come from who he is or the way that he acts or what he's interested in or the way that he sees the world necessarily. It, it comes from the relationship that his mother has with him and the life that his mother's living. Do you think you did that intentionally or was that just what you th- was that just the way you decided the story needed to be for the record? I don't th- I don't think that when I was writing that that I was intentionally putting you know the focus on the mother and the setting and right. the the time um and their relationship. I think that it was just what felt necessary at that point and I felt like it was important to have an idea of where he came from and uh, 
give depth to give depth to where he came from instead of just, you know, yeah, seeing the child through the child's eyes. I think it was nice to see their relationship through a more mature, you know, perspective. Right. And I think that goes back a lot to what we were talking about with the book was when I wrote it, the refocus I did a lot was he became a much more important character in the book, at least towards the middle. He oh yeah, a- definitely. His his depth and his importance in in the book is is much more pronounced as opposed right. to the album, which I think is what's good, and I hope that's what people grasp from it is that it's not just when you hear the sound turn the page book, right? So, but that's what you want, you know. And I there was one there was a question I had, and I I'm just going to ask it rather than transition smoothly into <laughs> okay, it. Okay, go. If you could include another track, like if you had another song that you like, you don't necessarily, it doesn't necessarily have something you've written, but if you could have included another song, what do you think it would have been story wise? Um, I think that it really would have been nice to write a song about Miss Terry that wasn't, didn't have anything to do with her being a prostitute. I think right. that it would have been really nice to uh, flesh out who she was a little bit more because it's not the way that I viewed her as being this singular character with no depth. Um, not that that's exactly how I feel it came across, but I really think it would have been nicer to uh, to give her more depth because I, I feel like that is the only thing missing for me Um from what the the story of that record could be. Right. But you put that in the book. Well, that's good. Yeah. I'm glad I was able to cover that. <laughs> do you think do you think uh do you think any of the original demos that were written would have worked for Act One? Like any of them at all? No, because I don't no. really like working that way. I don't like I I don't like shoehorning things. I I uh and if if for any reason there is something that I've written that I think, okay, no, that, that makes sense as this, it really has to make sense as that. And, right. and I've had that process where I'm trying to make something work and it always, if it doesn't work, I, I always remove it. And I always just happily let it go because there's no reason to just include it for the sake of including it. Right. Um, and so I did, definitely at the time do the work of listening to all of those songs and, and sort of racking my brain on whether or not they made any sense in that story. And and that was when I was still, you know, forming the story, but it just didn't, it didn't make sense. And it was also more exciting to start from the ground up. I mean, that's what you want when you're recording that kind of thing, yeah. especially, a, I guess the best way to put it would be a prequel. Yeah, it is. Of. It definitely yeah. is. Do you, can you still listen to it? No, <laughs> really? No, I can't. I can't listen to any of them. Honestly, I have a period of time where I will, and that's ju- that's the time frame between finishing the album and other people getting to hear it. Right. And that's the time that I can sort of my work is done. I've uh, there's no turning back, and I'm just going to turn on my you know listener mind. And, and sit back and, and sort of nostalgically go through the process. 
And then once other people start talking about it and asking me questions about it and diving into the lyrics and the music and the motifs and reviewing it and all of that stuff, then I lose my, my, uh, sort of love for it in, in the, from the audience perspective. And I just can't. Yeah. It's, it's weird. I get it. It's tough, man. It's it's really, it's really difficult to look back on things you've done. (laughs) Oh, it definitely is. If you could hear the records that I made in my bedroom when I was 13, there's nothing funnier than an 11 year old boy covering Jimi Hendrix and trying to sing like him. <laughs> and that was my life at the time. It was hilarious. My cover of Red House was transcendent. Staggering. <laughs> it does not pale in comparison. That's that's how we'll put it. To the original? Oh yeah. It's probably just probably just genius. It's Honestly, fucking hilarious. I think I would sooner <laughs> listen to something like that for like morbid uh, entertainment than I right. would go back and listen to Act One or Act Two. the The last time I listened to those records, Act One, Act Two, Act Three, was when I was learning them again for you know the sake of performing them live. Right. And even then, it was just like filleting myself in public. It felt just painful to to go back and listen to all that when did you when was the first time you uh, performed act one when was the first performance the 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 first performance i think was the record release show and really and it was also the the only record release show i've ever played where we didn't have records we didn't have any of the albums. They could not get them to us in time. And we played this show, I want to say, in Norwood, Massachusetts. And uh, wow. we didn't have any albums. So couldn't oh really God. do anything. I think we kind of dabbled before that on this tour. The first tour that the Deer Hunter did was with As Tall as Lions. And it was just a small regional thing. I think we played maybe one or two songs, like City Escape and... Uh, Actually, I think that might have been it. I think, yeah, we were too afraid to play 1878. That song couldn't really be done until Nick was playing with us live. Right. Um, And, uh, man, I don't know if we did play anything else. I I think we played, like, a few B-sides, like Deer Hunter B-sides from before the, the act stuff. And then I think we played Red Hands and, and something else that was on those uh, demos. Can you think of a time where it felt different when you like, was there a moment where you knew it was different than like receiving end of sirens, playing Red House when you're 13? Is, is there like, <laughs> no, honestly, it, it, well, it definitely felt different than the receiving end of sirens because, um, it's it is both liberating and enabling to be in a creative position where you're not constantly checking your creative output with other people's um opinions right and obviously that is what collaboration is but when you are when you are really inspired and the fire is in you to to create and you have that sort of open window it's it's incredibly liberating. So that was the first thing that I noticed was 
how liberating the process had become. Um, you know, over time I did miss the other sort of method of, of collaboration, but right. I never, so that, that was what separated it from the receiving of the sirens. And also I just, I had no premise of the kind of music that I wanted to make. And the receiving of the sirens was very, very specific about who the inspirations were and what kind of music we were going to make. And there were plenty of times when I would have suggestions or ideas and it was just like, that doesn't fit for this band. And that was something that just stuck with me. And I knew, and I had always made music this way where there was no genre and there was no real concern of, of fitting into one. It was just, if I wrote a surf rock song, it was a surf rock song. And if I wrote a, a, you know, a, very technical guitar driven song. That's what it was. Right. So it was more of a continuation of a part of me that I fell out of touch with over the, the years that I was in the receiving in the sirens. Um, but there was no part of me that thought like, yeah, this is it. This is what's going to carry me and people are going to enjoy this. Um, thankfully it, that the concern never really rose up in me of whether or not anyone would like it. That's a, uh... That's a rare thing. <laughs> I feel like you have to remove that concern only because, at least for me, when I become concerned has become later and later in the process. Uh, right. At that point, it was like as soon as I was done with the record, that's when it hit me of, okay, well, what is this? How is this going to do? Or what are people going to think? Or is the label going to like it? Right. Never I- when I was writing. But now it's like I won't really have that concern until six months after the record's been released (laughs) for better or worse. I, I, and that's not to say like, you know, all right, here's this fucking album. Who gives a shit what anybody thinks? (laughs) Fuck it. It's not like that. It's more, I'm sure you, you understand what I mean. No, but I mean, you and I, even with act five, like you and I have talked about this where it's like, holy, like I remember having this similar feeling of just like impending doom when I can't remember what song it was for act five, but it was something you said, you sent me the audio file and I was listening to it. And there was something you said it was, it was either like you're responsible for this or yeah, that was, that was, uh, Mr. Usher's, was it Mr. Usher's coming to town or, uh, I think so. Mr. Usher goes that to town. Was, I can't remember. <laughs> that was terrifying. Cause essentially what had happened in in that song specifically? Actually, I wonder if we should wait until we let's wait until we, we sh- talk about that record. We should wait till we talk about it because that is actually a really good story. I think it's pretty entertaining. Actually, I love it. I I fucking love it. Um, but yeah, <laughs> but but that just is without diving into that story right now. That that goes to show the fact that I was at this point checking pretty much everything with you. I mean, while I was working here alone on, on finishing act five for like three or four months, you and I were talking every single day. Yeah, I think so. Every single day. And it would be for good lengths of time. And there were a lot of, does this make sense, Alex? And you saying, uh, I guess. And then me saying, no, seriously. And you saying, well, Kind of, but if you if you think of it like this, or or if you approach it more like this, that was like sort of the template for most of our conversations. Was yeah, I would agree. Yeah, um, because 
I think especially at this point, being this far into a story that does have this much crosstalk between its albums, um, it gets a little bit hard to juggle. Yeah. Uh, well, and I think we were constantly going back and forth with that, too, saying, like, well, what if this, this happened here? So it would oh, yeah. echo to this to this right. record. Right. It was a uh, it was a yeah. lot. The uh not song. Oh, th- what is it called? It's not placement. It's uh track listing? Yeah, but it's it's you know, if every scene was written on a, a you know, post-it or something, just rearranging the post-its. Oh, it's like a no, it's like um when you're writing a script, you have cards on the you have cards on the board. Right. And and that was essentially what we were doing a lot of was here's all these scenes in what order, you know, the order yeah. didn't feel right until we ended up with the track listing that's there. Um and you know that a, a lot of that was decided before we recorded anything. And then right. there were some revisions during the making of of the record or the finishing of the record, but that was something we really went back and forth on. Um, and that was, I don't remember that actually ever being uh, an argument. I remember us both kind of scratching our heads a lot and trying our best to figure out like, okay, well, how do we really concisely make sense of all of these things that are supposed to happen? And how do we order them correctly so that they flow correctly? Yeah, I think what was good about that was also knowing that there was going to be a book at some point. Right. So... When we said, well, we want this song to cover this piece. And then like there's little connective tissue and we were like, how are we, how do we explain that? And it was the first time I think, I don't know, it might've been the first time for you where we were like, well, we could just cover it in the book. Right. Like, that these little happened. things gets covered in the book. Right. So it's, that was uh, important too. That, that was interesting. That was, uh, I think very important on these last two records. And it's part of, at least for me, them feeling more cohesive as concept records is having that second voice to say like, okay, you, you don't really need to say this happening or find a way to musically say that this is happening right now, or this detail to tell the story in this format and that you might actually make this album worse if you right. focus in on trying to convey this detail, it, it's it it's not necessary in this even even if it is an important detail, what it's trying to convey won't really come across the way you want it to come across. Um, I guess it just kind of works the way it's collaboration, but then it's also kind of being your own editor. Like I have a bad habit when I'm writing of um, editing as I go. Mm-hmm. And you're not supposed to do that. Like it's like one of those big like writing things people tell you is like don't edit as you go, get it all out of your system, and then you can edit from there. And I hate doing that because to me, what it is is you're editing something shitty. You're or you're, you're writing something shitty, and then you have to edit it into something less shitty. I'd rather make it good as I go, and then look back and be like, all right, this doesn't quite fit. So and that's sort of how I thought about it. I am honestly the exact same way. And also one of the, uh, if I can use a metaphor from something that I was just doing a couple hours ago, when you are, (laughs) this is going to sound so technical, but when you are finishing a guitar and you're, you're applying, uh, the clear 
the clear coat, there's two things that you can do. One is you can spray a couple of uh, coats and then sand it level and then spray a couple of coats and sand that level and then build up a very flat sort of mirror finish that way. Or if you're lazy, you just spray and spray and spray and spray. You end up with this sort of globby orange peel mess and the act of sort of getting that prepared to polish is much more laborious and, and uh, you could never really end up with the same sort of, of outcome. And it's the same kind of thing of sort of building up a little bit, whittling it down and refining it and having that sort of foundation that's consistently evolving, but, but taught so that right. you can have, you can feel comfortable moving on to other details. And, and uh, also I feel like, Editing as you go, it, at least for me, helps me keep whatever I'm doing cohesive in, in, in less stream of consciousness and more thoughtful. Yeah, absolutely. Um, well, yeah, I'm, if, I feel like if you do that, whether you're writing music or to writing a book or a comic or a, a screenplay, like I feel like that kind of writing – I don't know. I've always found it much more helpful to know that I feel like I'm heading in the right direction rather than just writing stream of consciousness and then that's it. Right. And actually, I recently was something that we're both working on. We're both writing that I'm just not going to say what it is. Right. But I had that exact realization in attempting to do it the way that is sort of unnatural for both you and I in – sort of charging ahead and saying like, okay, I'm just going to write and write and write and write, and then I'll edit. So I'll just get something down. Right. Um, and you know, uh, I want to say like 10 pages in, it hit me like, this is a mess. This is a total mess. And <laughs> right. I've, I've left myself no room to expand because my head is stuck in all of the issues that I'm just leaving in, in these other pages. Um, so, yeah, I, I think it's good that both you and I work that way. I think that's, you know. It seems to have worked out. Well, I just feel like it, it puts us both in the same sort of headspace and the same sort of workflow of detail-oriented, but not necessarily detail-obsessed, but to where it's patient, it's patient writing. Yeah. Which it has to be, I think, especially for I, something this expansive. I think so, too. I and mean, Yeah, especially for a story that – goes on for six acts, which is, you know, yeah, kind ten, of unheard of. It's ten, 10 plus years of work. It's pretty uh, – yeah, and like not only that but just like intense story, like not a whole lot of like frivolity. Like everything has its – everything has its place. Right. So – and like it's interesting because as you get into the later records, you realize that there are things from the first two or three that kind of pay off later on. And Right. It's – and I don't I think, think that would have good. come. I don't think that would have come from just sort of stream of consciousness my my way through it. I think going back and listening to you know obsessing over lyrics and and thinking of what they might lead to and right. and who these characters are and being thoughtful with it and patient. I think. Well, I think that's the cool thing about the deer hunter that you kind of invite though is you know you have people on you know whatever, you know, on all kinds of websites, obsessing over details and trying to like make the next leap in the story. And that to me is a very exciting way of storytelling and the way of getting 
any sort of art out there is you're waiting, like people are waiting on bated breath to hear one like tiny detail and then surmise an entire backstory behind <laughs> it. Like that is well, and not pretty to, awesome. Not to you know sound like self-aggrandizing or anything like that, but the thing that I I do enjoy about people getting into it is that the detail is there. And that yeah. they're they're not just being told here's a concept record and dive in, and then they're just sort of you know manufacturing detail that isn't there and meaning that isn't there because they're being told like you know they're being told this connects to this they're just they can hear it and they can you know they well, they they can feel that that's actually what it is and in in. in I like that a lot more than what I would say some concept records do, which is just say they're concept records. Well, I think what's nice is that you're not just a director telling, let's say a director just telling people, look at the guy's tattoos and it'll tell you the whole story. So (laughs) that's really polite. I'm, I, I can't help but feel that that's a very specific reference. (laughs) (laughs) Whoever's listening will know. Yeah. <laughs> this is the problem. Is like we start talking and we get a little, we'll get a little deeper and I start getting a little nerdier and then no, like that's what you should be. Out. I mean, I I love that. That was the perfect tease of information as well. You didn't say, you know, you didn't say damaged. <laughs> you didn't, didn't say, say green green hair or or mouthpiece or you, grill or grill. Is it a grill? It's a grill. Okay. Yeah. I mean, everything about that is ridiculous, but... It's just upsetting. (laughs) (laughs) The thing is, is I feel like I know exactly what your face did when you said that. There was, it was like a legitimate look of being let down or, or, or disappointed in something like you, which I know you are. It's like, well, it's like, uh... It's just stupid. It's yeah. It's disappointment and like kind of this borderline stupidity. Like, I'll just say what it is. Uh, obviously, like you know, the Suicide Squad movie came out, and there's all these. You know, the Joker looks like he's like the hottest guy at the gathering of the Juggalos, right? Which he's and, always been, right? I mean, that's canon. Yeah, yeah that's canon. That's how that goes. <laughs> Everybody, everybody's read those Batman annuals where the Joker takes a weekend off to go to the gathering. So. <laughs> So, but like the problem I have with it is for a very long time, like before the movie came out, everyone was like, maybe the Joker is Jason Todd because anyone who like tattoos the Joker, who tattoos their name and damaged and like anyone who's that like brand aware probably (laughs) is like really trying to convince people that they're the Joker. Can you imagine though, if like the penguin had the same sort of, situation <laughs> or two face had like two face tattooed one word on each of his faces or, you know, I, you know what I mean? Each side of his I, face. I think I would have actually been like, well, all right, whatever. I get it. Like <laughs> that would have made almost more sense than just like, Oh, well, so the explanation he gave was that, Oh yeah. Batman was really mad because Jason Todd died. So he beat the hell out of him. And we talked about this on the podcast I host with my friend, uh, Griffey, like 
if you've read any comic books, you could say and, what that podcast is too. You should. Oh yeah, say sorry, it. I forgot. Uh, I do another podcast called The Long Box Sessions with my friend Griffey. We talk about comic books and comic book movies. But like, if you've read comic books or seen movies, you know that more or less Batman every time he sees the Joker beats the shit out of him. There's right. not a single story in which the Joker doesn't have the shit kicked out of him by Batman. It's kind of so, the thing. It's it's fully yeah, expected. It's, it's a motif at this point. So for there to be a re- so for that to be the reason that he like got a grill and put tattoo damage across his head is kind of just like missing the point entirely of almost the entire thing. And I will say one one big glaring issue I have with that in general is simply that there is so much amazing imagery to pull from uh, across so many different versions of the Joker that you could, you could, or, or, you know, interpretations of the Joker that already exist and have already sort of passed the test of being, yeah. uh, you know, universally loved and, and exciting. And why not just simply do any one of those that, that are, are digestible. You know, it's just it's just so I don't want to say it's bad storytelling because it's not. It's just different. But at the same time, it's like there's an article that we were talking about also that came out that kind of hits the nail on the head. It's like Warner Brothers and DC just sort of it's it's not just a blatant like lack of knowledge. It's like open, openly disrespectful. It's like. It's like spitting in the president's face and not expecting Secret Service to come and like just beat your ass. Right. To circle back, this comic book that we did, like I am – I'm always proud of the things I put out into the world. Otherwise, I wouldn't do it. Right. But I um, am still scared of what everyone thinks mostly because I don't know if it's good anymore. It's been two years since I wrote it and you know – We've had a lot of trials and tribulations to get this book out into the world. And right. so still are having some issues. But, yeah. But like but, the first time we sat down and talked about making the act one book, I didn't say, listen, that record was really cool and everything. But I think what you're looking for is more tattoos and energy drinks. So I'm just going to redo the whole thing. <laughs> like, <and that's laughs> I see what you do. And I like that it's a period piece. What if the time period was 1980s Harlem? What do you think about that? Are you into that? How would you feel? Is it all right if the pimp and the priest is actually Grandmaster Flash? (laughs) I've been watching The Get Down on Netflix, so I'm like, that's the first thought I had. Like, that's is it all right if the Wrecking Crew is actually also in the book, and then uh, Brian Wilson's there? Why don't we just make it this festival of music? Like, you know. No, but that's, I think that comes from a, a respect of the source material. But also, you would think that the opportunity to attack any source material would come with the simultaneous desire to improve upon it, if at all possible. Right. And that is definitely the way that you approached it. And it seems to not necessarily be the the go-to mindset for m- most comic book movies. Well, um like to me, like for Act One, but like the benefit of Act One is that it's it's shorter for one, so it's a smaller it's a smaller record, so I have more room to play around. Mm-hmm. But like for instance, adding characters. When you read the book, I added a character in the book. He's not very important, but he at least is connective tissue to get you through 
from one character to the next. True. So yeah, to and- me, that's but that to me is not disrespectful. That's just me saying as a storyteller, I have to add this so that something makes sense. Right. Right. And it it in no way contradicts the existing story. It only improves upon it. And also that decision and that suggestion was really out of a creative necessity. It wasn't out of like the sort of, you know, what you were saying before of, well, I like this, but what do you think about going here with it? It was just, I like this, but to really make this work, you're going to need, you're going to need to add this into it and you're going to need to have these elements. And, um, yeah. And actually the character that you added, um, I feel like has a lot of, it's going to continue and develop through the story and it's going to be exclusive to these books. Um, I mean, it's to me like it's window dressing. He's a really fun character who like is really just going to look worse and worse as the story goes on. So (laughs) that's true. (laughs) So like it's this excellent time capsule of the book. So you see like by the time we get to the act five book, you're looking at it like, oh, that is disgusting. Right. And you know. I guess we could tell everybody what that is. It's a it's a it's a robot dog <laughs> named named Teddy Roosevelt. Um, Teddy Ro Teddy Roosevelt. Oh yeah, good. <laughs> there was a pun in there somewhere. Roosevelt. Um, Roosevelt. Yeah, uh, puppy Roosevelt, and yeah. he uh, he. What is it? He's omnis- omniscient. Um, well, I mean, the important thing about his character is that he can let, he connects with the future right. and, and he can walk through walls. He can walk through walls. He's, he's essentially, it, it's, it's the dawn of the mutant age. And, right. Um, right. That's you, really where I'm going with this. <laughs> <laughs> I love the mental image I have right now. Um, <laughs> oh my God. <laughs> <laughs> but I do think that it's very it's it's important whenever you have source material to a- add or or alter only in a way that um I mean you shouldn't be so bound as to be afraid of the source material but you should add and alter in a way that is based on the necessity of a translation of the medium. Yeah. And it shouldn't be um, and one thing that kind of dawned on me recently was that I I realize now a lot of the discrepancies I have between sort of the, you know, source material and a release of that material in a different medium. I, I, I and this is probably a no brainer for most people, but for me, it became a little bit clear that I feel like a lot of writers who are going to adapt something feel like they have to get something in there and they have to have some alteration and, and they want the credit of the alteration and the difference between it. And the idea of of only adapting something might feel stale or, or, you know, not very interesting for a writer because I don't think they necessarily traditionally approach it the way that you do, where you're, you're only looking to improve upon it again, based on the necessity of translating it. Well, I mean, I think that also has a lot to do with the strength of the source material. Like if we were going to do – if you had done a six-act concept record um, based on the Fantastic Voyage, I mean that is like a lot more difficult to add to and not say I want to do this but let me do it this way instead. Like it's like 
it's things I've talked about before. It's like, like if you're trying to improve on something that's already shitty, like <laughs> fantastic voyage, not a great idea, not a great movie, <laughs> but like maybe there's a way to improve on it. Right. So you try and improve on that. But like, that is true. That is true. But I think if you look at the, if you look at source material and you can see the strength it has, when you're looking at it as a storyteller, you might be able to fix, not fix, fix is the wrong word, but more like your addition is just something that was already there. Like you're like, oh, of course, of course that's already there. Right. Of course there's, of course there's some guy in this play. Of course there's another guy in this story. Right. Somewhere. Right. Like I, that makes perfect th- sense. There's opportunities. Like that's what it is. Like to me, adding to a story so that you have like your mark that's that's a that's a boardroom decision. Like there are people in a, there's a people in exec there are people in executive suites all over LA who are like, "Oh, that was my choice. That was my choice right there." Like they want to be credited for me. that. And it's horrible. And like that's not how storytelling should be and that's not how um it's definitely not how in my opinion music should be. No, definitely not. Like songwriting the collaborative process of songwriting should never be, it should always be the song or the story or the film or the book or whatever it is that you're collaborating on should be its own deciding factor of quality and of ideas and creativity. It should never be this, this desire to be represented on something or to, to have your, your fingerprint on it. Um, I mean, I think, from the perspective of act one, the desire for me was never to stamp, like put my stamp as a writer on anything. It was more to let the story guide, like the story guides you. Like if you're, if you're like, it's hard to describe because it's like awkwardly metaphysical and it's also kind of not, and it's also a little up your ass, like egotistical (laughs) to say, but like the story kind of guides you. And at the same time, you're also guiding the story. So you're, sitting there saying, I, I really need this to be this way. And I've, I remember talking to you about this when I was going through the record because my first, like, the most pragmatic thing to do is to listen to a record, like, a million times so that you know the beats. And I remember asking you, are these songs in order chronologically? And it was like, a t- it was a, there was a pause. And you wrote, I'm like, because I think there's two songs that are flipped in my head. And what was nice was you didn't say, no, this is how it is. Fucking write it that way. Don't be a dick. <laughs> you were like, well, kind of. You could you could look at it that way. And that's what worked, though, is like I flipped those songs. So the story beat to me also works as the story beat to me, like the pimp and the priest to me is the story beat, which is great. And the story beat hits at the right time in the book. And then you turn the page and it's another part of the story. And right. that's when, and that's like, that's the value of the strength of source material to me. Right. And I think that that also is again, echoing the changes being done out of a necessity of properly translating it. And, and that was, and also I feel like the, I remember that moment because it was a, it was a symbolic letting go for me and recognizing that you firmly understood the way to tell the story for, for that medium in a way that I just didn't. Um, and, and I mean, it's not to say that we didn't have, you know, we didn't butt heads on other topics or anything like that, but. Oh no, it was rough for a minute. <laughs> it, I mean, like, probably. What, wait, the, was it rough? 
Nah, I mean, it wasn't like there was never. It was never like contentiously like. Yeah, I, I what think an asshole. Maybe it was. It was sort of both of us up against different walls, trying to sort of sound reason out. And uh, yeah, I mean, I think that it's just. Um, this is a, such a like cliched phrase, but it's real. It really was like it's a tomato tomato thing. Like right. you're saying it a certain way. I'm like, okay, that's totally fine. What if I said it this way, though? It still meant the same thing, but I'm just like changing the vowel. Yeah. And that was really what it was. Right. Totally. But it's but and that's really kind of like that's what collaboration is, though. Right. And, and I mean, obviously, it wasn't anything that even came close to being so frustrating that we couldn't handle it because I would no, imagine we I'm, of- I'm a spiteful enough person that if we got there. I, w- I would have just would have just stopped. It. It, yeah. <laughs> and I, I mean, think you are too. I think that if I had been so, if it had ever gotten to the point where I was just being a, a shit and being just mean to be mean and shooting down your ideas and making you feel terrible, I think you very simply would have said like, look, I, I don't enjoy this. So yeah. I don't need to do this. I mean, and, there were probably two times I think where, on each side of it, we were both like, okay. Like, it were these, like, one-word answers while we were talking. And it's like, <laughs> yeah, all right. Yeah. Like, I, that, is like, that is, like, my go-to text method. When people know that I'm not uh, not happy, I just say one word. Oh, I know. I, I know. Yeah. And it's like usually it's usually followed with an uncharacteristic period. Oh, um, yeah. That, that I'm, a big, I'm a big fan of punctuation. And that's actually a huge, like, I have, I get called out on this all the time, is I love ellipses. <laughs> I don't know what it is like for me writing wise. It is like the greatest, like, ah, uh, like it's like a trial. Like a, it's, it's to it's equate like it to a like, fade out. It's, it's like a, a momentary fade it's out. Like, it's like a fade out. It's like a really thin vibrato as you're like, like rolling off, like rolling down a, like, you know, uh, like this whole little, uh, it's just this, <laughs> it's this weird little release. And like in recent, like probably in this, uh, there's another book I'm working on. I've like had to really curtail it. The ellipses. The, yeah. Like, cause it's just, it doesn't need to be everywhere. It's all over act one, <laughs> <laughs> but I think it also, it has to be for act one. But that's I mean just, that I put them in my lyrics. Uh, yeah. I think that you and I use them pretty consistently when we're talking to each other. Yeah. Um, I <laughs> and, yeah, I love them too. I mean, there's there's no contest for me. I love them. They're great. It's, the, it's my favorite punctuation, <laughs> without a doubt. It's just the anti punctuation. Yeah, that's exactly what it is. It's the, it's punctuation without actually punctuating anything. Yeah. It's like oh, I'll just keep that. I, I'm holding on so that I can actually follow up with another ellipses and continue the sentence. That's <laughs> that's what it is. It's the having said that of punctuation. <laughs> that's true. But, um, I had one other question that I was going to ask. You kind of answered it already, but I wanted to ask it anyways. Yeah. Do you, for you, does the story from act one hold up still as a story the way that you imagined it? Do you mean in, in the sense of, do I still feel like I, I told the story I wanted to tell? Yeah, I think so. I think, I think so. I think that the thing is, is, 
I don't feel like it would be truthful to not admit that I recognize my own personal evolution and growing and expanding my vocabulary musically and having more confidence in general. But also I understand there's a time and a place for everything. And that was the time and the place for that record. So there's a part of me who believes if I went back and that record had never been released and I went back and it was like, I started at act two or act three. And now I'm going to go back and, you know, know, George Lucas, my way through um, (laughs) the beginning of the story or just tell people that's what it is. Um, I mean, I definitely don't think I should continue with that comparison because that's not the right one. That's not the sentiment I want to get across. What you're saying is <laughs> you would have included a Jar Jar Binks. I mean, that's that's not a question. He's already in there. He's one of those characters you just you didn't find. But <laughs> he's, he's the character. I, he's actually the character I wrote in. Right. That's, that's what it is. <laughs> a Jamaican robot dog who's omniscient and can walk through walls. Uh, that's, that's who's in there. Um, (laughs) no, uh, I, uh, so, so yes, part it's both yes and no. I, I definitely have never felt like, you know, the, 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 the only part of the story that I would have wanted to tell that was extra was what we discussed, which was another song about Miss Terry, but that was more out of a respect for her and not necessarily feeling like the story required it. Um, so I don't necessarily have a problem with it, but there is a part of me who wonders what would have happened if I saved that story for you know a later time for me to go back and and sort of dive in. But I, again, I think there's a time and a place for everything, and I think whatever might embarrass me about that album or that I feel like might be a flaw, I feel like the body of work for an artist over their entire lifetime and showing that growth is more important than the concern of whether or not I, I, you know, I made mistakes or um, could have, you know, I obviously could have sang a lot better. And that's, that is the, the strongest thing that I have a problem with in listening to the older records, but the story itself, I feel like is there. Um, right. And I do feel like it, it holds up. And honestly, your book um, is a large part of why I feel like it, it does, is because you you pulled that from that record and obviously expanded upon it and improved it, but the raw material was all there. And if that was the inspiration for the book that I was reading and that I, you know, that I can read, then I feel like it, it, it does hold up. Um and the shortcomings that I feel that the album have, I feel like give it a character that maybe would not be there if I, if I had put it off until, you know, 10 years later. Well, I'm glad I could uh, be of service. That's good. <laughs> so, oh, man. so we are going, we're going to be talking about all of the records. All of them. And, act uh, two's next. Act two is next. And I, uh, I'm sure we'll get off on tangents again. I don't think we should shy away from that. And um, yeah, I mean, (laughs) I would say act two is the one I'm least excited to talk about, but I do think, I think everyone's very excited to hear about it. I think that's why I'm least excited to talk about it. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, 
but but um, um yeah yeah do you have anything you want to plug uh besides the fact that you have a record coming out no no i mean uh, the book uh we we're working on its own standalone release date that's removed from the sort of pre-order for for the album itself and so really that's it i just i can't wait for people to read the book i know for a fact you really fucking can't wait for people to read the book uh, yeah um, i really am very excited <laughs> i'm very excited for people to give a shit about the things i read so good. uh i'm really excited for people to hear act five because i think it's awesome what do you have to plug i feel like so we talked about your podcast yeah i I do the long box sessions which is on itunes and stitcher if you feel so inclined uh write little reviews and stuff because actually i didn't know this but uh reviews and ratings actually help people get sponsors really so if you want to review and if you want to review the podcast maybe um blue apron will sponsor us and i'll get free meals for like a month nice uh Sorry, that was really that no. Was like I'll do it. Plug. I don't care. Plug it. I'll I'll go yeah. and review it. I'll give it zero um, stars. Is it a star <laughs> rating? Yeah, stars. I'll zero. give it all the stars. All right, cool. Yeah. So long box sessions. Uh, and then I have another book I'm working on right now that I'm sure I'll be plugging in the future. Is it the book I'm thinking of or something else? It's the book you're thinking. Of. Okay, cool. I can't. I can't wait for that. Yeah, it'll be great. You've got a record coming out. You're going on tour. Yep. Yeah, that's and true. I guess I should plug that. That we're you should uh, say you're going on the tour. The Deer Hunter is going on tour with Isley and Gavin Castleton, uh, September 9th to October 28th. I think that's the correct time frame. That's and, awesome. Uh, yeah, man, I'm I'm very excited. It's uh, it's been it's been a little while since we've done a full U.S. tour, so I think we're all very very happy to get back out there and. Playing new music is always incredibly inspiring and, and fulfilling. So we're we're excited. I think it's going to be rad. I really do think I've heard the entire record, and it is it is my favorite record. That everyone's everyone says that about the record that comes out. It is my favorite record. So well, that's awesome. I think I've decided that. Awesome. Just just <laughs> awesome. Well. Uh, I guess we'll we'll get back yeah, together whenever we can about uh Yeah, next uh, two. we'll talk about Act Two and how much you love prostitutes. <laughs> oh that is a deep topic. Um <laughs> cool man. Well yeah, thanks for yeah. uh thanks for oh, sitting through this with me and No no, uh, thanks for um thanks for sitting through this with me. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Well good. Right. Um, yeah, great. It's good. Well then uh well I'm sure we'll just cut this at any second. Yeah, whatever, whenever you want to cut it.